So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Matthew chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one right over there. Keep it, mark it up, write in it, whatever you want, uh, our gift to you. And of course, you can always download uh, one from the App Store on your phone. Uh, Before we dive into our passage for today, I want to take a few minutes just to remind us a little bit of where we have been so far in Matthew. And so uh, Jesus has been going around teaching, preaching, doing these incredible uh, miracles. He's been healing people. He's been casting out evil spirits that have been oppressing people. He's been taking people who have been pushed to the margins of society and restoring them into community. And then Matthew takes us on a little bit of a break to start looking at the ways that people are reacting and responding to Jesus. And so in, in, in chapter 11, we start to see different responses but it all culminates in this confrontation that takes place with the Pharisees. That's the focus of chapter 12, the chapter we're in now. You may remember over the last few weeks that we've seen this ongoing conversation uh, or confrontation in several instances with the Pharisees. Now, if you've been part of the church world for any amount of time, you probably have a view of Pharisees that's as, as pretty negative. You think, oh yeah, those are hypocritical people. Uh, but, but if you were to step back into the first century, you would have a completely different perspective. And so the fact that Jesus is uh, having confrontations that are negative with the Pharisees is actually quite surprising. You see, the Pharisees were the, the pastors. They were the people people, you know, the, the ones who weren't just removed. They weren't some abstract academics. They were religious leaders who were involved in their community, cared deeply about the law. And you would look at them and think of someone in your life, maybe as an analogy, who you really respect because they really live out what they believe. If you can think of that person, that person would probably represent the way that most people felt about the Pharisees in the first century. These guys were hardcore. They really, really seemed to get it. And yet, as Jesus is meeting with them, that shiny, good-looking exterior seems to get peeled away. And underneath, what's getting exposed is a rotten core. So last week, Matt led us through uh, one of the, the most uh, probably widely debated passages in the book of Matthew. Uh, the Pharisees witnessed Jesus uh, casting out someone, uh, an evil spirit, an unclean spirit from a person. This person has been oppressed, and Jesus cast it out. And then they make this really, uh, which to us probably seems like kind of a foolish statement. They say, well, it's, it's by Beelzebul, this archaic word for the prince of demons that Jesus is doing this. And Jesus says, Guys, that doesn't even make sense on a logical level. Do you know nothing about military strategy? It doesn't really work if you're trying to win a battle if you start attacking your own troops. But what Jesus is exposing in this moment is that their hearts are so far gone that when undeniable, undisputable works of God are happening in front of them, they are actively choosing to ignore it and go so far as to actually call it the work of the prince of demons. And Jesus confronts them and he says, you know, any sin can be forgiven, but when you get to this point, man, it reveals that your heart is gone. Your heart is too hard. And it actually 
For those of you who are familiar with the biblical account, it, it almost invites us to think back of where are other pictures of this type of person. And you may remember the story of Moses. And in the story of Moses, there's this pro the emperor of Egypt. And Moses confronts him and does these incredible signs and miracles. And yet, every time, Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge it, refuses to acknowledge it, and his heart is hardened and hardened and hardened against it until there is no coming back. As Matt graciously reminded us, most of us will never have this opportunity to see God work in such explicit and profound ways. And so this, this, this warning that Jesus gives that there is an unforgivable sin will probably not be something that most of us need to worry too much about, but there is a warning for us. And the warning is that if you continue to reject Jesus, if you continue to ignore him, at a certain point, your heart is going to be so calcified that even if he did something so clearly, so undisputably, so undeniably clear, something that you would not really be able to say is anything but the work of God, you're going to miss it. And so Jesus is going to continue on the conversation today. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to chapter 12, verse 33. And he's going to continue with this confrontation and unpacking of what's going on in the Pharisees' hearts. So I'm going to dive right in here. It says this in verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings out evil things out of the evil that's stored up in him. But I tell you this, everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned." Man, this is, a, this is not a light passage. This is a heavy passage. This isn't like friendly Uncle Jesus comes to town with some treats for you, and then he kind of leaves with a pat on the back and like, obey your parents until I come back. No, this is like hard talk Jesus. This is like Uncle Jesus coming to town, sitting you down and saying, you're 30 and you're in your mom's basement and you have no life skills. It's time to grow up and man up. This is hardcore, hard truth, hard talk Jesus. And he invites us in this process to listen and be transformed. He starts off by saying this in verse 33, make a tree, uh, tree good and its fruit will be good or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Why is Jesus saying this? Well, because he's just been accused of something. And there's all these people outside of the Pharisees, this crowd that's looking on and so Jesus is actually inviting them to assess the accusation that's made against him. He's saying, okay, we all kind of know basic horticultural principles. If you plant a good tree, like say you plant like a nice fruit producing tree, an apple tree or a pear tree, well, you know what kind of tree it is because it's got apples or pears. But if you plant a thorn bush, you know it's probably not going to be a good fruit producing tree when it produces thorns. Uh, I know that... Uh, you know, there are some thorny, good, you know, bushes, like blackberry bushes and raspberry bushes, for sake of analogy. 
what Jesus is saying is, look at the evidence. What does the evidence tell you about the person? And, and we got to remember what's happened so far. I mean, Jesus has been, again, healing people. And he's been going to the people who have been ostracized, who are on the margins of society, stepping into their reality, loving them, caring them, and restoring them into community. He's preaching good news. He's inviting people to experience God's inbreaking kingdom. And all these people around have been able to hear about it and witness it. And so Jesus is actually inviting them to say, to see that he is indeed a good tree, unlike the accusation that's been made by the Pharisees. But at the same time, there's a contrast here. And Jesus is saying, okay, if you look at my life and you see that it has good fruit and you can then assume that I'm a good tree, what does that tell you about the situation that you've just witnessed? These quote-unquote good tree people, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, They just accused God of being... They just looked at something that was incredible, someone being freed from a spiritual oppression and called it the work of Satan. What does that tell you about the kind of fruit or the kind of tree these guys are? In case the crowds don't get the point, Jesus makes it real explicit for them. You brood of vipers! How can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. I don't know about you, but if someone called me like a brood of vipers, that's not typically a compliment. I don't know. Um, But it's interesting. This isn't the first time this phrase has been applied to the Pharisees. John the Baptist, one of Jesus' contemporaries, uh, does the same thing earlier in the book of Matthew in chapter 3. But this theme of serpent, it actually goes all the way back to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis. You may remember, if you're familiar with the book, that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates the world. And he creates human beings in his image to uh, rule over it, meaning that they are to care and cultivate the creation so that it reaches its maximum potential, so that it flourishes. And God says, I want you to enjoy it. Everything here is for your enjoyment. Go explore. Go experiment. Go uh, continue to work on it. And life is good. And God has one thing that he asks of them. He says, I'm going to put in the middle of this garden a tree which represents your choice to choose to follow me or go your own path. And I want you to trust that my path is the right one here. So don't eat of the fruit of that tree. But in Genesis chapter 3, along comes a serpent, a snake, a viper. And what does that viper do? It comes down from the tree. Adam and Eve, first humans, stand in there. And he says to them, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Why would he say it? Because that's obviously not what God said. It's like poison. He's trying to plant seeds of doubt into their heart about the goodness of God. And Adam and Eve know that's not true, so say, no, no, that's not what he said. He just said there's one tree we can't eat of. But the seed of doubt has already been planted. Maybe God's holding back. Maybe God doesn't really want what's good for you. That's exactly what the serpent says. 
You know, God is holding back because he knows that if you eat of this tree, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to have the experience of a lifetime. You're going to be like him. And Adam and Eve begin to doubt the goodness of God. They begin to think that there's something that he's holding back from them. And so they run in the opposite direction. Now think about that and then just imagine how heavy an insult this is to the Pharisees. Jesus is saying, you are like that snake. The poison that brought sin and rebellion into humanity is the same poison that you are spouting right now. That doesn't really make sense to us, right? Like these are good people. They are following all the religious rules. It seems on the surface like they are not like Adam and Eve. They're not rebelling. But here's the really interesting and subtle thing. See, the religious leaders at the heart of what was going on had the same issue. And it was an issue of trust in God. See, they had grown up hearing stories of how Israel had fallen away from God, how that he had created this people and called them to live in a certain way, and yet they had rebelled continually and he had sent them into exile. And they desperately did not want that to happen. They did not want to be kicked out of their lands. So they had this idea of what their utopia was like. And they felt in their hearts that if I work hard enough, if I do all the right things, then I will have obligated God to give me the things that I truly desire. And it's the same thing that they were teaching the people around them. And at the heart of it, it was the exact same issue as Adam and Eve. It just got played out in a different way. Adam and Eve didn't trust God, and they ran in the opposite direction. And some of you in this room might be there. You think that God is holding you back, that there's something better out there. And so you're full scale, boom, I'm out. I'm going to try and figure this out on my own. But some, maybe even many of us, might trend towards the Pharisees. There's something that we really want from God. And so we think, man, if I work hard enough, if I obey enough, then he's going to give it to me. And the problem is, is that God's invitation isn't to something else. His invitation is to himself. And when we go after anything else, it actually is destructive. And this is the point that Jesus is going to continue to make. But there's a third thing that Jesus is pointing out here. It's not just simply his good tree status and the Pharisees' bad tree status. He's also inviting us as readers, as hearers of this story, to reflect on our own fruit and start to ask ourselves the question, what kind of tree are we? He goes on in verse 35, and he says this, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings out evil things out of the evil that's stored up in him. <clears throat> I think if we're really being honest with ourselves, most of us think we're, we're pretty good people. I know I do all the time. Um, yeah, uh, and, and it's interesting. I mean, even theologically, probably some of us would say, no, that's not true. But, but if we look at how we respond to things, 
what it reveals is that we, we probably have this idea that we're pretty good people. You know if you start playing the comparison game, right? I look over there and, oh man, do you see how those people parent their kids? Ugh. Little hellions. That's probably what people are going to say about our kids when they're not seven months old and sleep in a wrap. <laughs> you know, you do this all the time. You, you look around and, and you compare and you, you think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. And yet Jesus says, take a look at the fruit of your life. We, we don't do that very often. And I think part of the reason that we think we're good people is that uh, we live in a, in a society that uh, has societal pressure that actually keeps us in check. I mean, how many of you grew up uh, 80s, 90s, or were around in the 80s and 90s? A few of us, okay. Uh, so you might have noticed this. There are certain words that were pretty commonplace that you could say in like high school and elementary that you can't say anymore. So you don't. Because it's going to stir up controversy. It's going to be, you're, you're going to look bad, whatever. So we don't say those words anymore. At least we don't say them in certain company. Or we don't say them out loud. You see, we learn that there are negative consequences to our actions that we don't like. But it doesn't necessarily mean that our hearts are changed. Early on, if you're a young boy, uh, not, I'm not saying this is true for every young boy, so you don't have to you know, come and down with the wrath of like gender equality or something like that on me. Uh, but if you're a young boy, uh, probably fairly commonplace that the uh, way you solve problems is you fight, you hit, you punch. I know I did that. Uh, you know, I got into tons and tons and tons of fights when I was a kid. But I learned that you don't solve your problems by hitting. It doesn't mean when I'm angry that there's not some urges to want to hit something. What it does mean is that I recognize that the consequences are not something that I want to deal with. And we have these moments where we think because we can stop ourselves that the issue is gone. And Jesus actually invites us to say, we got to dig deeper than this. There's this uh, diagram that we often use at West Village when we talk about uh, DNA groups as a way to kind of get at the heart of issues. should be on the screen behind me in a moment here. Uh, but <clears throat> this diagram is called fruit to root. Perfect. We got it up. So if you look over here, my left, your right, what you'll see is there is a tree, and we'll call it the bad fruit tree. Uh, and the bad fruit tree has different bad fruit, bad expressions, things like anxiety, destructive words, hopelessness, pride, uh, angry lashing out. Most of us, if we do this a lot, recognize that there's negative consequences, and so we want to try and control it. So what we end up doing is what we, we entitle fruit stapling. You'll see at the bottom there it says fruit staple. So that would be like an example, false humility. We know that people don't really like it when you're like super braggy, and so you create false humility. Post that on the tree over the negative fruit, and you look pretty good. But what you'll notice is at the middle there is a sun, and the sun represents situations that come along. And this is what happens if all we're doing is stapling false fruit, bad fruit, or uh, 
like good fruit over our bad fruit, when that sun starts to heat up, that staple fruit has nothing giving it nutrients to help it sustain that pressure and it falls off and what's exposed underneath is the bad fruit that was there all along. Give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Shannon, my wife and I, we had a situation arise that we had some conflict with, with my extended family and, uh, and we were discussing this issue together and at a certain point, it became a little bit heated And I said something that was hurtful, harmful, and untrue because I was angry. That was the heat. We didn't have control over that situation. What we did have control over is how we responded. And my response revealed what kind of tree I was in that moment. See, when the heat gets turned up, eventually it's going to expose what's in the heart. But so often we get fixated on the situation and ignore the deeper work that needs to be done inside of us. And so we get stuck in this cycle, this feedback loop where man, I I really want to change this thing about myself because I know it's not good. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better worker. I want to be a better parent. I want to be a better child. And yet over and over again, something comes up and the same mistake gets made and made and made and made. And we play the, what I like to call the if only game. Come home, home from work. Dishes aren't done. Supper's not on the table. Kids are crazy. And you blow up. Blow up at your spouse. You you didn't work hard enough. What is this? I've been working all day. I want to come home to something good. If only she had worked harder, got this done, this whole blow up would have never happened. We play it this way, driving on holidays. Uh, I know this one very well because I grew up this situation. You got three kids in the back. They're all fighting. Mom can't handle it. Starts yelling, blows up at them. If only they had just listened to me when I told them to stop fighting, this would have never happened. You're in a relationship with someone and you desperately want them to notice you, to spend more time with you, to care about you, and they don't. And then along comes some other guy. Man, and he he cares. He listens. And you start getting a little bit emotionally attached. And then you cheat. And the whole time you're saying in your head, if only my boyfriend or my husband had paid more attention to me, this would have never happened. We do this with work. We do this with school. We do this with our friends. If only, if only, if only. The other thing that we can do is is we just ignore it. 
We sweep it under the rug, pretend nothing happened at all, and never deal with it. And there may be some of you in this room who you've been going from church to church to church to church because anytime any sort of tension, anytime any sort of conflict arises, you're like, I'm out. I'm not going to deal with this. And instead of actually doing the hard work of assessing what kind of tree you are by what heart you have, you run and run and run. And Jesus invites us to look deeper when he says, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. That word stored, uh, more literally translated, uh, deals with about value. What do you value? What do you treasure? It's not, it's not about things that you accumulate. It's about things that you care about. Value is love. What do you love. There's an author uh, and scholar's name's James Smith, and he wrote this phenomenal book. I highly recommend it to everyone. It's called You Are What You Love. And within the book, he follows this ancient Christian claim that all of life is indeed worship. And you know what you worship by what you love. He writes this in his first chapter. He says, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity the wellspring from which our actions and behaviors flow. A lot of us think that our mind is at the core of our identity, how we rationalize, how we think. But Smith's argument is that that's actually not the case. You want to know who someone is? Look at what they care about. Look at what they love. That's a deeper emotion. It stirs us in ways that we can't always even see or comprehend. Our wants reverberate from our heart the epicenter of the human person. Thus, Scripture counsels, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Discipleship, we might say then, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to the intentional, uh, be attentive to and intentional about what you love. see, when we love something to a certain point, it becomes an act of worship. And worship is just an old English word that's a combination of two words, meaning to ascribe worth to, to care for. But here's what Jesus is getting at. See, what we treasure in our heart, it can be disordered. There's lots of good things in our lives that we can and should treasure. But when we put them as ultimate things, they become things that we worship. And that has dramatic consequences. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the, uh, the TV show Breaking Bad. It was on a few years ago. Uh, but if you're not, a quick summary. It involves a character named Walter White. Walter White is a sort of beat-up high, stu- uh, high school teacher. When you meet him, you start to recognize that he had this uh, really v- uh, vibrant career in, uh, in science, uh, but at this point, he's feeling dejected and beat up and kind of, uh, he's just sort of a, a person who's kind of pushed to the edges of his, of his life. And then he finds out he has terminal cancer. And 
he doesn't want to leave his family with all these medical bills. So in his mind, he says, okay, I'm going to make this decision to care for my family because I, I love them. And in the entire show, he's, he's convinced that his motivation for everything he does is love for his family. And so he starts cooking crystal meth. This isn't the show for your five-year-old, by the way. There's this profound moment in the last season where he sits down and he starts to realize, I I didn't do this because I love my family. I did this because I loved power. And you see how this disorderment of his loves actually twists him from this demure uh, high school teacher to this drug lord who orders the executions and tortures of dozens of people. What happened there? You see, he he thought his loves were ordered correctly, but if he truly loved his family, he would have never gotten into this space in the first place. It put them in harm's way, put him in harm's way. It created so much conflict and trauma. I think for many of us, we trick ourselves into thinking that our loves are just in the right order, and yet they're not. And when our loves are disordered, it leads to destruction to those we love and to our lives themselves. Just think about it for a second. What would happen if, say, comfort or pleasure or people or power and significance or beauty and image become ultimate things? None of those things in and of themselves are bad things. I had a friend... Uh, in high school, and uh, her whole life, she was told she was beautiful. And it became the defining thing in her life. It became the ultimate thing. And it eventually led to a point where she developed an eating disorder, anorexia. For some of us, comfort is an ultimate thing. It's the thing that we love, it's the thing that we worship. And so although we say, man, I want to follow Jesus with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, man, we can't even get off the couch and stop watching Netflix long enough to go and talk to our neighbors about him. When we allow these things to get disordered, it fractures us. And Jesus says there are dire consequences to it. Verse 36, he says, But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. This word that the uh, NIV translation uh, translates here as empty words think can give us the wrong impression. We start to think of that as casual or careless words. That's actually not what Jesus is saying. One of the scholars I had the pleasure of reading, a man named Artin France, uh, comments it on this way. He says, the point is not the casualness of the utterance, but its fallaciousness, not thoughtless words, such as a carefree joke, but deedless ones loafers which ought to be up and busy about what they say. It's the broken promise, the unpaid vow, words that said, I go, sir, and yet never went. 
He goes on to comment on the Pharisees. He says, the Pharisees' charge against Jesus, which was far from casual or thoughtless, is such an utterance, purporting to be a defense of God's truth, but all the time working against his saving purpose. If you're like me, when you start thinking about these types of words, that's terrifying. Because I know there's been times I've said, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this, and I haven't. There's been times that I've said, man, God, I'm all in. I'm going to follow you with all my heart, and I haven't. Actually, there's lots of times. There's daily times like that. I do that not just with God, but with the people in my life. Jesus says, man, there's going to be a day when you've got to give an account for what happened there. And I know that if the rubric for my salvation is my words, I am screwed. I'm done. I think if you're being really honest with yourself, that you might be in the same boat. But here's the thing. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37 is not the end of Matthew. Matthew's going to record in Matthew chapter 26 and 27 that Jesus the one whose words were not worthless, the one who was a good tree, and we know by his good fruit, gets arrested, put on trial, and condemned. Why? Because in that moment, he wasn't just standing before the religious leaders or the Romans, he was standing before God himself. When God looked at Jesus, he didn't see a good tree. He saw all of our worthless words. And Jesus paid the price that we deserved. But there's this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing that happened. Because the acquittal that Jesus should have, been ha- uh, should have had, that was offered to us. And I know there's going to come a day where I stand before God. And when he opens that book to look over my life, look over the words that I've said, he's not going to see all that worthless stuff that I do. He's going to see Jesus' good fruit. And the beautiful invitation is this is not just some kind of future reality that Jesus offers. He actually offers to change our hearts, to reorder the things that we value and treasure. And so there's an invitation here, not just simply to go to him, but to allow him to come into us. And when that happens, when we allow this good news of what he's done to take root, it wells up in good fruit by his spirit. 
The Apostle Paul, reflecting on this transformation, writes in the book of Galatians, it's a letter to these churches in the uh, Roman province of Galatia, he writes this, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. What's he saying? It's like this is the fruit that you can never be condemned for because it is good fruit. And when you allow this good news of who Jesus is to come into your life and transform you, this is the result. You actually become a good tree. I want to share a quick story of how I've seen this play out in my life. When I was about 15 years old, I uh, discovered pornography for the first time. Uh, and quickly it became something that, uh, that I was addicted to. And I, over the course of several years, started to recognize, yeah, this is something that isn't healthy for me. It's not good. It leads to uh, things that just aren't, aren't good in my life. And I don't think this is something that's honoring to God. And I worked so hard and tried so many things to, to try and get out of this, what felt like a trap. Nothing seemed to work, and nothing seemed to work, and nothing seemed to work. And what I realize now is that I was fruit stapling. I was fruit stapling. I was never actually going deep enough. I was never actually allowing the Spirit of God to get to the heart issue in that. When I was in my mid-20s, I got this book, and we actually sell it um, at the Connect uh, desk. And so if, if you want to, it's great. It's called You Can Change. And within that, it wasn't specifically talking about this particular issue, but uh, there was a challenge there. The challenge was to think about the thing that you feel needs to change in your life. How do you typically treat it? You see, in my mind, I had to go through this cycle. So what would happen is I'd mess up, I'd binge, and then I feel so gross. I feel dirty. I feel like, man, I can't even go close to a holy God. I got to fix myself up first. So it wasn't until several days of like trying to get myself right that I would ever go back to God. And what the, the book challenged me to realize is that I kept thinking I needed to hate this more. But the problem was that I need to actually love Jesus more than I loved it. And so I started, whenever I'd mess up, rather than trying to beat myself up, I'd fall on my knees and I'd say, man, Jesus, I'm so thankful that even though I knowingly in this moment did something that was against who you are, that's destructive to myself, that you went to the cross for me. That in this moment, that this is exactly why you had to die. And in a way that had never really become apparent to me before, I started to understand exactly what the cross was all about. And you know what? My loves got reordered. Pleasure wasn't the thing that drove me anymore. Because I started to love Jesus more than it. This is a beautiful invitation to all of us to allow the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done to reshape us so that we bear good fruit. You can see in the diagram what happens. 
So when the gospel is what we're rooted in, it results in the fruit of the Spirit. We get patience, kindness, self-control, peace, love. As you assess your lives, ask yourselves, what kind of tree do I want to be? I want to close off here with just asking a couple of diagnostic questions to leave us with for today. For those of you who are here and you're not sure about Jesus, you're just kind of journeying with us. Maybe someone invited you. Maybe uh, someone forced you to be here. Maybe you're just curious. I want to ask you these three questions. First of all, number one, when you survey your life, what kind of fruit is revealed by your words? Be really honest. What do your words say about what kind of tree you might be? Second question. As you think about what you treasure or what you love, is it possible that your loves are disordered and that it's resulting in damaging words and actions? Is that a possibility? And number three, how do you intend to fix it? For those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, I want to ask these two questions. First question I want to ask is, are your words worthless? Are your words weightless? Have you told God, man, I'm following you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and yet everything else comes first? As a follow-up, I want to ask, what are the habits that you are doing to feed your heart? You see, there's this beautiful dichotomy that happens when we turn to follow Jesus. We have been given his spirit, and it transforms us, but at the same time, we're still here. We still have our flesh. We still have the potential for bad fruit. And the more we give room for the spirit to guide us in our lives, the more He transforms us from the inside out, making us a holy, good tree. But if you keep feeding the bad tree, if you keep giving alternative stories to the gospel, alternative loves to Jesus, it's going to be pretty hard for you to grow into a good tree. What are the things that you feed your heart? I'm going to invite the band up as we close here. We're going to respond in a couple of different ways. First of all, we're going to get to respond through music. Music is one of those habits of grace. Because we're going to be singing about how good Jesus is, how sufficient he is. And it's a reminder that he is the one who has to go deep to root out the things in our heart. We're also going to take offering. Uh, this is a practice that has happened in the church from as long back as the church has existed. And it's a practice that helps us keep money in a proper order in our lives. So when money becomes an ultimate thing, it drives us into weird and destructive places. But every week, we get to be reminded that Jesus is our ultimate thing. And that it's his mission in his kingdom that define how the money that he's given us gets to be used, and we submit that to him. We're also going to take communion together. 
And what a rich and beautiful symbol every week that we get to take part of. The cracker representing his broken body. The wine or grape juice, his shed blood. Why? Because even though his words were not worthless, even though his fruit was good, he was condemned. But he was condemned so we could be acquitted. That's a story that takes good root in your life and wells up in good fruit. Finally, if, if you're just feeling the weight of this, and you're like, man, I, I, need, I need to go to that God. You just want to invite you to pray. And I would love to pray with you. I think Ken and Rena aren't here today, but uh, look for someone who looks like they're good with praying with you, and, and they'd love to just bring you to the one who's offering the chance to be transformed. Let me pray for us. Father, when I assess my heart, the things that I love, when I look at the fruit of my life, I know that if I had to give an account for it, I'd be done. And yet, I'm so thankful that you and your grace took the condemnation that I deserved upon yourself and that you've offered up your spirit who's now at work transforming me and producing good fruit. I pray for our church family that we would continually learn to treasure you and that in that process, you would bear good fruit for our city, for our country, for our world. Amen.